Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 15th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, researcher Shane Caulfield at the Randerson Labs at UCI's Earth System Science brings their machine learning artificial intelligence toward modeling wildfires in Alaska that tell which of those fires will burn out of control. Yowza! Soon, we hope those models are put to use elsewhere, like here in California. Then, in the second segment, Dr. Carl Kochman will cover the state of Alzheimer's research in advance of UCI Mine Alzheimer Association Annual Conference in Irvine on October 25th, the theme of which is 30 Years of Discovery, Hope on the Horizon. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest is Shane Caulfield, PhD student at the Department of Earth System Sciences at UCI, applying remote sensing data and machine learning methods to improve wildfire prediction. These methods predict final fire size at the time of ignition. He is a board member of Climate Literacy and Inquiry, known as CLEAN, and earlier interned at NASA. Shane completed his Bachelor's of Science in Geophysical Sciences and Environmental Science at the University of Chicago and his Master's of Science in Earth System Science at UCI. He joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Shane Caulfield. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with some of the the basics of the terrain of interest, the domain for which you've built this model is the boreal forests. This is over northern North America, Scandinavia, and Russia in the Russian terrain. The snow forest consisting mainly of pines, spruces, and larches. Talk about why they're susceptible. Sure, yeah, so specifically this is Alaska that we've developed our model for. And Alaska is a scientifically interesting place, uh, mostly because of it's been responding so strongly to trends in climate. So it's been warming at about twice the rate of the global average, and the summers have been longer and hotter. And specifically, there's been more lightning strikes in the area. And this is a place that is extremely susceptible, as you were saying, because of the lightning and because of the strong trends in climate. So it's an interesting place to, to do science and to make an impact on the fire risk. Does the remoteness have any, is it a factor too with the susceptibility? Not necessarily in terms of susceptibility, but we we did choose it because it was remote. So the fact that it's remote allows us to really understand the climate controls on fire as opposed to the human management controls on fire. So it's simplifying the model a little bit. There are fewer moving parts. Exactly. But there's still a ton of parts moving. (laughs) Okay, fine. Well, one more thing that it's also what makes this of concern that you might want to weigh in is about it is the Earth's largest terrestrial carbon sink. So that has tremendous value in managing climate change. Yeah, exactly. This is a a really critical area in in terms of carbon storage, as you're saying. So understanding what's going to happen in the future as the climate continues to warm, fires continue to increase, it'll really threaten this key source of carbon. Okay. So why don't you talk about the key component of your model, how machine learning, artificial intelligence can predict wildfire fire behavior. I mean, that's like the whole article I'm asking. He's like, mm-hmm. just, just casually now. Exactly. Yeah, we in our study implemented machine learning to try to predict the final size of fires at the time they ignite. And specifically, we're interested in picking out the largest fires as soon as possible. And the analogy that we like to use for that is that we're basically trying to predict which fires will go viral. Kind of like in social media, we could think about when a tweet is posted, what are the features or sort of the network that's really important for predicting if it's going to go viral. We're looking at things like the climate conditions and the structure of fuels around the ignition that are most likely to drive a really large fire. 
And so the structures are factors I want you to talk about. There are the variables. There's the topography, the geography, the vegetation, and all of these things. Talk about the roles they play. And would you call it, if it were in social media, it would be like a marker. So these are markers that are the factors. Sure. Yeah, there's, there's a whole list of factors the, the, of the three things that you mentioned, the vegetation, topography, and weather. And so that's where machine learning comes in. And it's really useful to be able to figure out what are the best ways to kind of summarize all the different variables. We could think about all kinds of different, the specific s- species of vegetation. Um, in terms of topography, there's slope, aspect, and elevation. All could matter. Um, and then in terms of climate, there's you know, we the main one that we use is called vapor pressure deficit. It's basically a measure of how dry the air is. So the machine learning comes in handy because it can help us identify what time scales are really important for these variables too. You know, is it ten days before the ignition or just a few days before th- even? That's where the predictions begin. Right. We we tested a whole different window of different combinations of time spans that were critical, and in the end, yeah. So we went like 10 days before up to seven days after and found that the really critical period for the weather was within the next four to five days after the ignition. So using the forecast was really predictive. And then in terms of vegetation, it was ended up being like a two and a half mile radius was the optimal radius for considering the fraction of spruce trees in our model. And in preparation for this interview, I've heard a little bit with some of your materials about the very particular features of spruce that are defensive of that vegetative species. Right, exactly. So there are different species have different strategies when it comes to fire. And spruce, specifically black spruce, is a species which is called a fire embracer. So it has this strategy where it's evolutionarily adapted to fires at a certain interval and it can actually wick up the fires with these long droopy branches and kind of spread it through the crown of the forest and basically kill off everything else while it can survive through the fire. So that's why it's an important species that we look for when it comes to the largest fires. And I will get into the interdisciplinary group in a bit to talk about who is throwing their vegetative expertise weight around so that you can really fully appreciate that factor. So, and I imagine like with some of the recent wildfires in California, we're all getting a little bit more literacy about the vapor factor and the the humidity. And I'm sure when you're hearing about them happening in real time around here, when you're hearing the reporters cover just how absolutely low the humidity is, it must, you you must really understand the significance of that. Right, right. That's really relevant. And especially I'm not from California, so I didn't realize just how dry the air gets here. And that's why when we have these Santa Ana events, it's really on high alert for for wildfires because it's the combination of temperature and a lack of humidity and wind speed here in California that really matter. And it's a little bit different in Alaska because often these fires start when there's a big lightning storm that comes across the state. So it's not often the very driest periods when, when the fires are starting. But if there does happen to be lightning when the air is a little bit drier that can really set the stage for a large fire. So does it matter what ignited the fire then? Is, is, is lightning, is there something particular to that? I don't know if there's going to be utility hazards in remote boreal forests in Alaska, but does it matter what sets the sucker off? The short answer is no. The, the way we set up our model is we chose to only look at the wilderness areas of Alaska, and those are predominantly lightning ignited okay. anyways. So that's a good question, though. We could, you know, certainly in California, there would probably be a difference. The one difference we did see was that in our data set, yeah, most of the fires were lightning ignited. But when we did expand it a little bit to look at the areas that were closer to people, where the fires were more likely to be ignited by sparks caused by humans, those fires tended to happen in conditions that were drier on average. Oh, right? really? Because we associate lightning with rain. Okay, sure. So the, it's just... There's a, more humidity. More humidity, more moisture. Um, so it's a good thing that we do suppress the fires that humans start because those kind of disproportionately happen in drier times than the, the natural lightning ignitions would happen. Okay. Well, well, we'll keep bringing up more factors and we'll move around the geographic areas, but mainly concentrate now in Alaska. So contributing to the study, Jim Randerson is the is the, the principal investigator for the project. 
introduce the name of everybody contributing on this team. Sure. It, it was a large and interdisciplinary team of researchers here at UC Irvine. Um, I was the lead author, followed by Kisi Graf and Yang Chen. And our faculty advisors on the project were Effie Fufala Georgiou and Pork Smith. And Jim Randerson is, is my primary advisor. Okay. So talk about how the team worked and, and what kinds of disciplines you needed to cover all of these factors in your artificial intelligence, your machine learning method. Absolutely. Um, this was really at the intersection of a few different science and technology fields. So I'm coming with an earth system science perspective, and so is my advisor, Jim, and collaborator, Yang. But we couldn't have done this without the input of engineers and computer scientists. So Effie is coming from civil and environmental engineering, and Pork and Casey are our computer science, statistics, machine learning experts from the information and computer sciences department. So it, it was really a, a collaborative effort where we provided the questions and they knew a lot more about the tools and the methods that were required to get at the answers that we were looking for. Well, so when you help me understand, when you are coming with an earth system science, but that could mean many, many different kinds of fields too. So what was it that is your field? So within earth system science, I would say that I'm a terrestrial ecosystem ecologist. Okay. And that means that I'm more interested in kind of the biology of the landscape as opposed to plenty of people study ocean dynamics or the atmosphere or, or ice within earth system science. Or bacteria or fungus or all kinds of things. Sure. Okay. So were there any interesting sorts of stories about how this kind of, this model came about with, with inquiry in between these disciplines? Yeah, it, it's interesting combining disciplines like this. There can sometimes often be a little bit of tension where we're communicating past each other. But for the most part, it was it was really successful where they were able to provide the tools that we needed. And we kind of iterated through different ideas that they had in terms of the machine learning. So underneath the umbrella of machine learning, there are lots of different algorithms that we could try. And they vary in terms of their complexity and their interpretability, which as scientists, we're really interested in that. We, we don't want to just throw data into a black box and, and see what the answer is. We really care about which ways we can kind of untangle the information that's going in to to get a sense of what's really controlling these fires at a, at a fundamental level. Because you always know going into this, there's always going to be a much larger application. And there is such intention with earth system science. It's sort of like everybody's, it's on you guys to help solve these unwieldy trends that are affecting the entire planet. So there's that, that urgency. Yeah, there's a lot of weight on our shoulders, it there's feels like, ton, to solve these tons. huge problems that our planet's facing. Absolutely. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Shane Caulfield, PhD student at Randerson Labs at UCI's Department of Earth System Science. He's working on methods to improve wildfire prediction and has recently published in the International Journal of Wildland Fire. The article is entitled, Machine Learning to Predict Final Fire Size at the Time of Ignition. Well, I understand that the data includes the fires of, was it 1,200 events? And those are all up in Alaska over how many years? 17 years we used from 2001 to, to 2017. And you talk about how the bigger the fire, the more accurate the model. How does that look? In some sense, work? sure. So our model was trying to predict whether a fire would be a small, medium, or large fire from the time that it ignited. And on average, our accuracy was about 50%. And so that might not seem in entirely promising, but it, the reason we still decided that you know it was interesting and, and publishable is because of what you're saying, that it, it is more accurate for the largest fire class. So on average, we can catch about 65% of the fires that, that do become large with our model. And so that's really critical information for fire managers so that they can you know, decide what percent of ignitions they have the resources to fight and save a, a majority of the burned area by just fighting a few of them. So I guess just for a little tiny particular, the engineers must have been very taken, the engineers on your team, they, the 50 and 65 percent accuracy, I'm sure that got them super excited. Sure. Yeah, I think so. The kind of the baseline we were trying to beat would be about 33%. Okay, so that is, that's hugely Yeah, percent. so it, it, it's definitely a significant improvement over kind of having, having no information at all. 
And as you've talked with other media outlets, because you're you're everywhere, all over the place right now, Shane, is that you were talking about. So when multiple fires and they're in the boreal forest, there I don't know how many. What what for example between 2001 and 2017, how many fires could there be occurring at one time? At one time, it could be dozens. So there are these times when, you know, a lightning storm comes across the state and it could ignite dozens of fires in just a few days. But if only a few of them get really large, then that that makes an interesting prediction problem we're trying to identify. Just the few out of those dozens or even a hundred in a couple days that are going to account for most of the destruction. And so the importance of this high percentage of accuracy of predicting these fire events is that you're able to do, as you've talked about with other interviews, about a triage, which ones to attend to, to save resources in terms of natural resources as well as state and federal financial resources. Yeah, exactly. And there's a figure in our paper where we kind of try to address that question exactly. And for example, we can say that if fire managers theoretically wanted to prevent 80% of the destruction in terms of burned area, then they could use our model and, and pick out about 40% of fires that account for that really disproportionate amount of destruction and, and target those. So the containment number is always really interesting for me as a layperson to understand. We hear first and when an event is opening up, there is no percent containment and then it can sort of creeps upward. Is that a very interesting kind of measurement for what you're talking about in predictions? Mm-hmm. It's not something we explicitly use in in our predictions. We're basically just using the information of whenever the fire has run its course, however long that took, we're trying to predict that final fire size. So whether it's a few days or weeks or months in advance, we're just really trying to predict from the first couple days, regardless of how long it lasts, if there's predictive information there. But yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, even with the Saddle Ridge fire that's been happening in right California, now. I think they're saying it's still less than 50% contained, even though the re- evacuation orders have been lifted and everything. So I'm not sure exactly what it takes for 100% containment, maybe if fires are still smoldering a little bit or something. But yeah, again, what we're interested in is kind of the final burned area. Okay, that's important. So, and you were saying that the degree of accuracy is you like better a simpler model gives you it how does it tell you more a simpler model because you with the trade-off of higher accuracy how does that work i think what we found that was interesting is that a simpler model performed just as well as a more complex model so we tried more kind of advanced techniques there you know neural networks that we can run and what's a neural network in the boreal forest a neural network is is a type of model, which is a lot kind of more of a a black box that can kind of decide what variables are important and try to predict the fire, the same final fire size, but with with a lot more hidden layers and things that we don't understand. Like lots of different real subtle patterns to detect? Really fitting to all the intricacies of the data. And we found that those didn't do better than the simpler models. So probably what's limiting our accuracy at this point is the simplicity of the data that we're putting in, right? So there's the data and then there's the model. And we really pushed hard kind of on the modeling end, trying to make it more complex. And that didn't improve our performance, but maybe trying to capture some more intricacies of, you know, the details of the fuel network and things like that, instead of really simple summaries that we used in our model. So talk about what future adjustments would you envision in adapting your model? And we'll talk about the model itself and then future adaptations for the mix of the uses from uh, transitioning from purely a wild life setting, a, 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 a wild area versus a wild mix, life mixture with a suburban built environment. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to try to improve the accuracy that we talk about in the paper is like I was saying, just trying to improve the information that we're putting into the model in the first place. Um, So we're really just trying to get simple summaries of, you know, kind of in one number, how can you summarize the vegetation around the ignition? But using more maybe complex or two-dimensional data that really captures the network of fuels and things like the road structure could probably be important in improving the model. And then I think 
sort of the the real big question is trying to apply this to other areas. Right. Like For instance, where like there's California. a suburban mix. So, and how that that's an, a very very complicated next step to to cross. Sure. Right now, we've basically been able to isolate kind of the climate and vegetation variables that are interesting, but you throw humans in and it, it yeah, becomes a lot more complicated. Think of the Paradise Fire and the others where that all of those household materials, the flammability and the mix of, we have not native vegetation, we have exotics. We have all kinds of fuel for that for a prediction of right. actual size at the end. Sure. And in that case, the, the homes were really the most kind of flammable material mm-hmm. there. If you look at these pictures that the forests are well adapted to fires, they just kind of blow through, but it's r- the houses completely were destroyed in, in the fires, which is really tragic. So I, I'm not sure if we would use, to what extent those, like the houses and the architecture themselves kind of enhances the fire. I mean, it must, but yeah, we'll, we'll look into that. So how far are you in your model and actually becoming a part of the state and federal kinds of agencies that are managing these hazards? That's kind of just something we're starting to get into right now. And since this paper's come out, there's been a good deal of attention. And yeah, we've been contacted by the Alaska Fire Consortium, and hopefully we'll be presenting first um, with a webinar, but maybe going up to meet them and really trying to harness their on-the-ground expertise as to what extent this will be useful for them. So we'll certainly be collaborating with them going forward. And here in California, so far, I've been contacted by someone in Los Angeles through... through the, the county? A- through the the Air Force, actually. Okay, the in federal. In Los Angeles, okay. yeah, the, fed- the federal level and the National Guard that work with the state agencies like CAL FIRE to and kind FEMA? of bring the best data. Yeah, okay. and FEMA. Because this could be, you know, we're kind of providing information that could be useful both for the firefighters in terms of triaging the fires, but also for making really fast decisions about where to evacuate people. Because we're on notice. The number, the intensity, all of this is only going in one direction. Does that sort of unnerve you when these things are, uh, the uptick is taking place? Right, and I, I, that's kind of what's motivating a lot of our research, I think. Especially, like I said, Alaska's been warming at about twice the rate as most places. So it's kind of a moment where we might want to re- rethink how we approach fire management and start fighting fires in places where we hadn't historically had to before. So who has funded this research? Who, and uh, is there more funding coming? Sure. Yeah, there's there's a long list of acknowledgments in our paper. This is an interdisciplinary project, so by its nature, it's gotten funding from lots of different sources. For for me in particular, it's coming from the National Science Foundation, a graduate research fellowship, and also through the National Science Foundation with a research traineeship that we're very lucky to have here at, at UC Irvine. It's called machine learning and physical sciences or is that a, maps a, a year program. to year thing or is this a huge like three this to five, a five year this is a five-year okay. program a three million dollar grant from the nsf and it's funding exactly these types of collaborations between um, statistics and computer sciences and the physical sciences but aside from that I, some of the faculty have funding from the department of energy and, and nasa as well so you were talking a little bit about the responses. So you're hearing from regional, state, and from federal agencies about your findings. But as now, now might be kind of a particularly uh, tough time. There's competing attentions for real fire event management and what your findings are and how this stuff gets institutionalized. Sure. It, it's been, it, this research has gotten more attention than I think I anticipated at the beginning. And I think it has, you know, it's a really relevant topic. It's got a lot of the relevant buzzwords. You know, it's about climate change and machine learning and and wildfire prediction. And it's coming at a time just we're coming out of Alaska's fire season where they've had some really some record fires this year. It's been really, really hot up there compared to to previous years. And we're coming into the to the California wildfire season. So, yeah, it's a very relevant time. But also, as you're saying, it, it means that fire agencies are, in California at least, might be too busy to kind of think about 
new approaches at, at this time of year. But some of them have been involved, though, in some of those Alaska fires, too, haven't they? Don't these agencies move around to where there's a, a sort of a press for managing those I'm events? not sure. It's a mix of, of okay. state and, and federal resources in, in both cases. So do these models then, how far away do you think before we can start seeing them being used around here? We, we talked about when they can be used in Alaska, but how far away is this machine learning going to be applied for name your county in California? Mm-hmm. How f- many years out are we? There are lots of scientists working on this already, and I, I think it's you know it's already being used. There's a group down at San Diego that has a tool called Wi-Fi, and they're really incorporating lots of data, and I believe machine learning under the hood, and that's something that fire managers are, are actively using here in California. And I think... You know, between their team and our team, this is something that is really already happening here in California. And I hope, you know, on a time scale of a year or two, that there will be more involved and and it becomes active. institutionalized with agency managers. Right, right. At this point, it's kind of just a matter of building a tool out of the model that we've developed. And if it is something that the managers are interested in and that's going to be useful, then that can be developed in a couple months. You know, Shane, what comes to my mind here is the missing donors should be the insurance companies, the underwriters all over the country. They should be all over this because it's their liability. Yep, it's it's an expensive but, problem. For but they're not in. Involved. They're not funders now. No, I don't think okay, so. Okay, well, but that's some. No, it's they but, must be waiting their turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, let's say you had unlimited cash to make your next move on this project. What what would be that sort of the moon lift of making this really resolve how fires are managed and, and reduced? I think the next step would be to look at California in detail. And it's just, there's so much data coming in right now. Uh, yeah, I, I really think that's kind of the most important target that we, that we can go after right now because it's been such an expensive problem for the state. So just in general, expanding beyond Alaska to California or or even globally and really getting as much data as we can at a fine scale to improve these predictions. Is there a crowdsourcing part of this kind of a study? Like we there's a lot of crowdsourcing for habitat, wildlife habitat management. But would that be any kind of a a load of of data for this model? Not that I know of. I think most of the funding is coming from federal agencies because a lot of the no, data... No, crowdsourcing in terms of what people send in. Like the with the the bird population, that there's tabulations going mm-hmm. on with people that are already out there. And so I don't know if there's tabulations. That, I mean, there's some people that chase fires the way they chase tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that. But there's... In terms of collecting data, you Collecting mean? data, that kind of crowdsourcing. Uh, we, we have basically satellites and airplanes and That's drones all, all over remotely. it. That's all, remotely. I... Remotely, right? I could imagine a crowdsourcing project, maybe with with drones or something, because those are coming so, becoming so much more popular that and they're sweeping so many broader swaths of the planet. Right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Well, finally, as we wrap this interview, what is the choice job, Shane, that you see yourself filling once you've completed your degree here at UCI? Well, I've got about three years left here, so. We'll see what kind of conclusion I come to. But so far, I've been really excited by this kind of science research, and it's what I see myself doing in the future. So that could be maybe a a university setting like this, but probably more likely in working for a government agency, a a national lab or something like NASA, the, the EPA, the Forest Service, to solve these really critical questions that we're facing right now. Okay. Well, Shane, I want to thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for covering our science research on your show. This was really interesting. Glad to see artificial intelligence saving uh, the public dole and uh, maybe a few more acres. My guest was Shane Caulfield, PhD student at Randerson Labs in UCI's Department of Earth System Science. He's working on methods to improve wildfire prediction and has recently published in the International Journal of Wildland Fire the article entitled Machine Learning to Predict final fire size at the time of ignition. And I just might note that this International Journal of Wildland Fire article is the most actively read at this moment.
Thanks again. We'll be right back with Dr. Carl Cotman, and we'll be celebrating the up-and-coming 30th annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Association Research Conference coming up October 25th. We'll be right back after a station break. And now, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Dr. Carl Kotman, UCI Professor of Neurology, Neurobiology, and Behavior. As we look forward to the 30th annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Association Conference, October 25th, title being 30 Years of Discovery, Hope on the Horizon. Professor Kotman's career at UCI began in 1968 as professor of the Department of Psychobiology. He then became director of the Institute for Brain Aging and Dementia at UCI, then professor at Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, Department of Neurology, and then the founding director of the Institute for Memory Impairments and Neurological Disorders. We call that MIND. That's the shorthand we'll be using later on in the interview. He's published over 750 peer-reviewed articles and 11 books and book chapters. Dr. Kotman was the catalyst in establishing a partnership with USC. And in 1985, UC Irvine, USC, was awarded one of the first five Alzheimer's Disease Research Center grants supported by the National Institute on Aging. This year... The center grant celebrates 30th year of funding. And other longtime grants initiated by Dr. Carl Kotman are the program project grant in its 34th year and the aging training grant in its 31st year. He researches effective intervention strategies to reduce age-related cognitive decline. Over the past few years, his research is focused on the importance of exercise for promoting healthy brain function, particularly in the aged and AD brain. He pioneered studies on the mechanism by which exercise can improve brain health and reduce aging-related cognitive decline. We'll talk about that today. His honors include, I'm not listing all of them, just I'm picking up a few, UCI Medal for Outstanding Support for the University's Mission of Teaching, Research, and Public Service, the Alzheimer's Association of Orange County Community Partner of the Year Award, the Reeves Irvine Research Medal, the ISI Highly Cited Researchers, and Lifetime Achievement Awards around UCI, Southern California, and beyond. Carl Kotman completed his bachelor's in chemistry at Worcester College, his master's in analytical chemistry at Wesleyan University, and his PhD at the University of Indiana. He joins me in studio with Chelsea Cox, who is a member of the MIND staff, and welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Kotman. Thank you. It's good to have you here today, and congratulations getting to this lap of all of this Congregating and researching. I mean, just congratulations. Take a take a radio bow. I did oh. indeed. Okay, good. So <clears throat> let's have you take then. We've sort of mapped out a little bit about what your work's been. You've let's have you take a long view of the arc of Alzheimer's research in your experience and how that will be measured at the October twenty fifth conference. Yeah, you know, you you think back, and you know, it doesn't seem like thirty years, but in that period, we've made some enormous progress. I mean, I think 30 years ago, I mean, we certainly knew about Alzheimer's disease, but we didn't really have an idea how prevalent it was and, and um, you know, how it's uh, affecting the nation and, and the world. But I think what's exciting is that we're developing strategies to essentially um, help protect people and to treat it. So that's the good news. Um, 30 years ago, we didn't have the tools either. And so a lot of the innovation has really arisen because of uh, the advent of 
improved uh, uh, imaging, brain imaging techniques, the improvement of biomarkers, and, uh, and the uh, better understanding of the molecular machinery that goes out of function with Alzheimer's disease. And along that progress is that there is uh, less of a, an impact on the, the person using those diagnostics. There, I don't want to say it's a more benign. The interventions are less consequential on the person's body as well as they're more accessible in a financial sense. Correct, yes. So that's huge progress. Uh, absolutely. It's gotten a little more democratic, del- yeah. healthcare delivery, in that yes. sense. Right. So you've pioneered developments dealing with the basic mechanisms of neural degeneration to clinical interventions, and a lot of this was centering around what was happening with the hippocampus after the damage to the, as you say, the cortical input in both the mature and the aged brain. So, but the hippocampus is the area that you've mainly been considering in the cranial tissues? Correct. Yeah, the hippocampus is really one of the first targets that Alzheimer's attacks. And so we focused on that because the life history of the hippocampus is essentially the life history of the disease. And that's where proof positive makes that an Alzheimer's form of dementia versus the other, the Lewy body and the other kinds of dementia. Fundamentally, yes. Okay. Okay. So, and the aging and Alzheimer's, they're all, they're linked to excessive inflammation. I think that's been a slower in coming kind of correlation from the, the disease and the sort of, we're all, the more we age, we're all having subclinical sorts of inflammation occurring in our bodies. Right now, while we're speaking. <laughs> right. Yeah, inflammation, of course, is necessary to essentially keep the system tuned up and to help promote healing. But chronic inflammation is where the danger sets in because it's like a slow-burning coal that essentially just keeps carving away at the uh, workings of the, of the system. So we need to control inflammation, but we we can't shut it down because we obviously need it to keep the brain protected and the whole body. And how it affects some synaptic plasticity where the the brain doesn't continue to decline. That plasticity is a very important kind of vigor of the brain's function. Yeah, I think you've hit the key phrase is plasticity and Essentially, the brain is built to record change. I mean, that's fundamentally what it does. And so that process is called plasticity. And that happens at synapses or the connections between neurons. And with use, they adjust their function and can actually become stronger or weaker. And they even grow to some degree. And so this plasticity... There are a number of clinicians that are studying that at different phases of brain development, at different ages. And so and your work has been at dealing with the plasticity of an aged brain or of where there's an onset. Maybe that brain isn't that old, but there is an earlier onset of some form of dementia. Yes, there's the, the sort of the inherited form, which does occur earlier. And that's, you know, sort of more genetically related. The other sporadic form or the later form is essentially, you know, just something that uh, people get. And there's risk factors, which include genetic and, and environmental. And trauma. And it the had, earlier it trauma. trauma, et cetera. So I'm wondering at this point, if you're starting, I'm, I'm, I'm not, this is sort of like uh, out from left field, but we have now more patients with trauma history from earlier and earlier trauma in their sports work. Do you see that in patient histories when they're consenting to participate in these trials? You're saying, oh, this is, there's a lot more people getting their heads bumped than they used to. Yes, indeed. And, and there actually was a, a nice research article of, that looked at the brain of people that had been in sports and had head trauma. Jim Hicks's work or somebody else? Yes. And, okay. And, and then actually, actually, no, it was a Harvard group initially. Okay. And they did um, looked at the pathology and, oh, my gosh, it promoted Alzheimer's-like pathology plus degeneration. 
And so it's pretty darn serious. So that could be creating a whole different sort of subcategory of factors that are, I don't know, it, not that it would rule out a participant, but it's one you're, you're definitely following. And you oh, see yes. that. So that could be maybe one of the single most important factors of, of a preclinical kind of onset of Alzheimer's. It, it's one of the factors that I don't even think it's the it's the primary. What's the primary factor. one? Is it the inflammation rates? It, it's really synaptic dysfunction. Okay. You know that occurs even before degeneration, and one of the things that we're working on now is how synapses get shut down. Okay. You know, or compromised, so that we can revive them again. And it's pretty exciting because yes. we've found that there's a sort of a switch that, you know, we can uh, attack and turn it back up and turn it on. And uh, in, in animal models, uh, the brain will function at a better level. Wow, that is exciting. It is. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Carl Kotman, founding director of UCI Mind and distinguished professor of neurology, neurobiology, and behavior. We're talking about, well, we're taking a, a sweep of the, the inroads made in over the last three plus decades in Alzheimer's research, and this all in advance of the annual Southern California Alzheimer's Research Conference taking place at the Irvine Marriott all day on October 25th, an annual ritual for the benefit of expert and lay audiences. I say that because it really does do that. So before we go into some of the logistics and the all-stars that are going to be contributing, I, I've really been taken by the last three or four years, Dr. Kotman, when you will present your findings about what actual things like good old exercise, the benefits and the dividends of those over all this huge investment everybody had to make with pharmaceutical interventions research. So talk about that good message is that help is right in your garage, in your workout room, in your bedroom, wherever wherever you stretch and lift and, and pull and all that. So how, what are you finding right up until 2019? Well, it's been said that by a couple of prominent investigators that the biggest risk factor is physical inactivity for cognitive decline. And, you know, just sitting is not good. It, it's kind of the, the new smoking, if you will. And so, I do will, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we basically started to look at this years and years ago on the idea that um, somebody one time asked me, what does exercise do to the brain? And, you know, I, I, I thought about it and I said, well, you know, let, let me go look it up. And it turned out there was nothing in the literature, really, except it increases metabolism. And then somehow or another, I didn't think that that would have enough of an enduring effect. So I walked around the lab quietly, um, you know, put on my thinking cap, if you will, which means that you focus and concentrate, and said, if you had your wish, what would be the single most remarkable change that exercise could do to improve the brain and protect it. And I figured it was a growth factor called brain-drive neurotrophic factor, uh, BDNF. And so, you know, I thought that, gee whiz, that'd be an exciting thing to work on and just test it. And so I went to a couple of my good postdocs and told them about this idea and they said, well, Carl, we're kind of busy now, so, Ugh. you know, I don't think we have time to work on this. But but it's a good idea, of course. Ugh. And then <clears throat> I, I did that with two or three other people. And finally, I went to my first-year graduate student that just started in the lab and talked to her about it. And she actually had an uh, undergraduate degree in physical uh, Are we going to drop a name here? No. <clears throat> we're not. Okay. Just but, acknowledging, but okay. but but she she went and um, you, you know did the first experiments, and I remember trying to get some running wheels so that you know we could 
test the animals and give them some exercise in the lab and then, you know, measure what happens in the brain. And, you know, I, I sort of thought and I went to the, the local pet store and saw hamster cages, which were a little small, but, you know, okay for mice and bought a few of them. Well, then the, um, the, uh, the vivarium or the place where the animals are kept and the staff told me I couldn't use those because they were partly plastic. Oh, okay. And so I had to buy stainless steel. Yeah, running, plastic's going to shed stuff. It's going to throw a, yeah, an outcome. Yeah, running wheels, which cost a small fortune. Okay. They were a couple thousand dollars a piece. Wow. Yeah, no. But we got them and did the first measurements, and by golly, with, uh, with exercise uh, and running, this molecule increased in the brain, and it increased of all places in the hippocampus. Really? Yeah, it was, that's what I said, too. I, I, I expected it to be in the motor systems and the sensory systems, but here it was in the hippocampus. And I said, boy, that was not what I expected. And the most exciting thing about experiments is when you get a result that you're not expecting. Oh, yeah. Then, then you really that, learn something. Oh, my goodness. So you start thinking about it and thinking about it, and you figure, you know, good Lord, it's controlling cognitive function. And so we did a number of experiments and, you know, really got the paper published. And, you know, it initially it got pretty much ignored, but then finally it got uh, picked up. And I remember one time I was at the winter conference, uh, which in the time off you ski a little bit for fun. And... Um, and this guy up at the top of the run, he said, come on, Carl, let's go. Let's get our BDF levels increased. Okay. <laughs> and then you pr- gave your papers after the ski run. Right. <laughs> when you're top form. Yep. Oh, that is phenomenal. Well, the themes, the conference this year is, as I've said, is 30 years of discovery, hope on the horizon. And we have a roster of amazing providers, presenters. So... I don't know if Chelsea wants to give us some highlights of the, I don't want to say rock star, because they're just solid. They're just solid people from all over the country that are going to be presenting. I think rock star is appropriate. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be happy to give some of the highlights of the conference this year. Um, Again, this is our 30th annual research conference that Dr. Kotman actually started 30 years ago. So, um, so exciting to be here in the studio with you, Dr. Kotman, and hearing about Alzheimer's research and um, Dr. Kotman talked a little bit about working with mouse models and Dr. Frank LaFerla, who is a chancellor's professor and the dean in the UCI School of Biological Sciences, is going to be giving a lecture at the conference to talk specifically about lessons that we've learned in working with mice. Dr. LaFerla invented the first mouse model to develop amyloid plaques oh, is that right? wow. and neurofibrillary tangles, which are the two key hallmark features of Alzheimer's disease pathology. Always goes back to that every year. Yeah. yeah Everybody's um, got those slides. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so in his presentation, um, Dr. LaFerla is going to address how mouse models are used to study the disease, um, as well as the challenges that we have with current models and his efforts toward improved, um, making improved models so that we can better understand the disease and have models that more accurately reflect the sporadic form of the disease. And then Dr. David Sulzer, who is a new clinician who's joined UCI Mind, he'll be, uh, he brings a geriatric psychiatrist training to his work and what briefly will he be advancing Yeah, so we're really excited to welcome Dr. Soltzer to the team. He um, started not too long ago with UCI Mind after 20 years at UCLA and the West LA um, VA Center. Uh, So pretty exciting to have him on board. He's going to be leading UCI Mind's clinical clinical research operations. Um, And in his session, um, entitled Advances in Clinical Diagnosis, Dr. Soltzer is going to explain how doctors arrive at a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or another cause of dementia, and importantly, how diagnosis has really changed and improved over the past several decades. That's huge. That's huge. Oh, I hope he has plenty of time. For questions, because there's you try you keep on the the schedule, but there's there's never never enough time. I'm just gonna put that request in now. Just bank in. I don't know how you're gonna change everything around just so you have more time for questions. Then Julie Schneider is next on the roster. Yeah, Dr. so Dr. Julie Schneider is a professor at, at Rush University, uh, associate director of the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. Her focus really focuses on linking 
pathology um, with risk factors and brain imaging to improve our understanding of cognitive aging and dementia. So she's going to be talking in her session um, entitled Gifted Brains Yield Priceless Gains. Uh, she's going to talk about how brain donation has really been an invaluable oh. resource to researchers and what we've learned from brain donations. Okay. And Dr. William... Yeah, Dr. William Jagus is a professor from UC Berkeley who will be joining us for the conference to talk about brain scans and the advances in that technology. He really has pioneered approaches using brain imaging to improve our understanding of aging and dementia, and we'll be talking a bit more about that. Okay, and that's back to what Dr. Kotman was talking about. So many inroads and more people getting them, less of an impact on the patient, and more data for the clinicians to understand what's going on with individuals and overall. Then, doc- That and the others are going to be an ex- exciting talks. Yes. Uh, Jagus is outstanding. Okay. And Josh Grill is going to have a, he'll moderate a panel with about three or four. I'm not sure we can just. Can sure. Um, so in this panel, we wanted to get um, diverse viewpoints. So we have Excellent. a doctor on the panel, Dr. Lisa Gibbs, who leads UCI's uh, Senior Health Center. We have um, Dr. Elizabeth Head, who is a neuroscientist with UCI Mind. Um, and we have uh, Beatrice Vides, who runs the clinical trial, uh, coordinates clinical trials for UCI Mind. She will have so much to tell us. She oh, sure will. I'm so glad that I saw her figure on there, but I didn't see where she was plugging into what part of the program. So yeah. that is so those are the professionals we'll have on the panel, yes. and then we also will have a research participant share his perspective and a caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's dementia. And then Dr. Rhoda Ow. Yeah, so um, Dr. Ow is joining us from Boston University, and her research focuses on big data analytics and how we can use data um, and technology to better understand and diagnose Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. And the, the last of the invited guests. Lastly is um, Dr. Rebecca Gottesman joining us from Johns Hopkins University. And um, she studies the, it uh, looks at the impact of heart disease on the brain. Wow. So she's going to be wow. talking a lot about lifestyle risk factors and um, protective factors. All right. Oh, I can imagine all of the comorbidities that will be brought up in the, with the clinicians there. Well, I'm going to quickly run down the details that people can get either more information at conference at ucimind.uci.edu or call 949-824-9475. There's breakfast that starts the day at 7.30. The programming begins at 8.15. And when Joshua Grill will welcome everybody, I want to thank you, Chelsea Cox, for running through the program and honor you. And thank you, Dr. Cotman, for coming today on the show. Been a pleasure. Thank okay, you. thank you so much. And that's my wrap. Next week I'll have on Ming Chen, law professor at UCI Colorado Boulder, along with her colleagues of the Colorado State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. It's reporting some serious delays in the citizenship naturalization process. And attention. If your application hasn't, wasn't started March of 2019, you've missed the 2020 presidential election. No kidding. My other guest will be Richard Alexander, technical electrical publisher for Pure Insight about the electricity infrastructure and those wildfires breaking out. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>